We'll be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 this morning. Just looking at the first 10 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 5. And uh, this, this chapter is somewhat of a um, conglomeration. There, a conglomeration. There's um, one of the commentaries called it a collage. In uh, my grandparents' house, they had um, one, they had about four different collages, one for each of their kids' families. And you know what a collage is, right? You've got five or six different pictures. They used to be really popular. And you'd have one bigger picture square, and you'd have a little round one, and you'd have these random for snapshots. Now, we don't even print our pictures anymore. We just have them all on our phones, which is good because we have them with us everywhere, but it's bad because it's really hard to find any of the pictures. But then I have a box at home full of pictures, and it's really full of pictures, and uh, it's hard to find anything. Like, you have to sort through forever and ever, and... And so I don't know which system is better, but uh, anyway, they had these collages in there, and the collages are really random. And Second Samuel chapter five is also pretty random in what it tells. It's not giving you a chronological arrangement or description of events in David's kingdom, but if you read the chapter, you notice that it kind of jumps around a little bit. I'll point that out a little bit to you later on, but let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, uh, these are the words of God. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that leddest out and broughtest in Israel, and the people said to thee, I'm sorry, the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither thinking, David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Millo and inward. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your working in David's life and in Israel as well, I pray that you would teach us to rely on you, to realize and understand that our Uh, affairs are in your hands, that you have ordered our steps and you delight in our way. And I pray, Lord, that there would be 
a growing confidence in you, in your guidance, in your direction in our lives day by day. I ask that you'd help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. David was still a very young man when he began to reign, uh, 30 years old. I know that, you know, if you're 18, 30 seems old. It only seems old until you're 30. I'll just tell you that. And then after that, from then on, it's young, like the height of youth and youthfulness and bigger and so on. Now, when I turned 30, um, I came into school the morning that I turned 30 and now uh, there were black balloons hanging in my office and there was a wheelchair waiting for me to wheel me around and there was a cane. And of course, I played along with it. I had a, myself a nice bald wig and I put that on and I talked all day like this. And then everybody was amused by that. And all the kids now are looking at me thinking, when was that? I don't even remember. Yeah, That's because your parents were still kids when that happened. Um, and uh, so, you know, God blesses us with uh, age. Um, but uh, David was a young man, 30 years old when he began to reign. Now, I would guess that he was anointed king 10 years before he began to reign. 10 years Okay, seven and a half years, understand, for seven and a half years he reigned in Hebron. Okay, so ten years before this, and David was chased around by Saul all around the countryside. Okay, so that means probably he was 18 or so when he killed Goliath, probably about 20 when he was anointed king. And that means that All that time when he was hiding in the wilderness, all that time when he was restraining himself from killing King Saul, all that time when he was dealing with the frustrations and dealing with the betrayals in in all the places where he went and and people would see an an opportunity to endear themselves to Saul and so they they would expose David, they would reveal where he was hiding. All that time... He was a man in his 20s. Now, if you know anything about youth, and especially young men, you know that young men tend to overdo everything and tend to be impetuous about everything. And if there's one thing they almost universally lack, it is self-control, the ability to tell themselves, no, don't do this, to restrain themselves. And yet David has for 10 years been chased around the Israelite countryside and has restrained himself for 10 years, has held back, has trusted the Lord and waited patiently for him. How many young men in their 20s have that ability to wait patiently, especially especially when you've already been anointed king and you know that it is by right God gave you the throne. He said it was yours and here's this man who wants to kill you for it and all it would take would be for me just to turn my back and let my guy Abinadab was it Abinadab or whatever, whichever one of those guys, Abiathar, I think it was Abiathar, that was right next to him and wanted to kill Saul right then. And all David had to do is just turn his back, turn a blind eye to it, let it happen, and then it would be his. 
Just like that. But David is patient. He waits. He is confident. He trusts in the Lord in all that time. Now clearly, as a young man in his 20s, God is taking him through really the darkest days of his life. In his 20s, God is shaping David for greatness. And in fact, the greatness of David is a recurring theme here in these early chapters of 2 Samuel. I want you to notice again uh, verse 10 of our text. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts, the God of battles, was with him. Chapter 3, you know, opens with this line that David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. But understand that part of David becoming great was that he had to suffer greatly. God had to take him through the refining process and put him through the fire and chisel on him and hammer on him. And God was shaping, shaping him, sharpening him so that he could be a useful instrument in God's service. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us that it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now we, in our day and age, our culture, our young men have rejected any kind of hardness. They don't, they don't want any part with it. That young men today are content to sleep in late and to watch play video games and watch movies and YouTube clips and all of this stuff, and it fills their lives. But young men, God has called you to greatness. And the path to greatness lies through trial and difficulty and tribulation. We need that. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Don't shrink from hard things when you're a young man. The truth is, if you're going to do a work for God at all, you'll have to weather some difficult things. And so it's good for us as we come to this, really the full launch of David's reign as king, um, to see what sustained him. And I believe this passage highlights what sustained David during those difficult days and that really shaped the way he viewed himself as Israel's king as well. Because for one thing, What sustained David will sustain you and me as well. And what will sustain us? Confidence in God's promises. That's what I want to show you this morning. God keeps his promises. That's what I believe this text is showing us. God keeps his promises. God's promise is central to this passage. Now it's obvious In the crowning of David as king. Because it was ten years ago that David was anointed king. And now finally he is crowned king. The people have petitioned him 
to become their king. And David now becomes the king. God keeps his promises. But God immediately after David becomes king, God highlights one of David's triumphs. And that triumph fulfilled a much older promise. I'm excited to show it to you, but you're going to have to hang with me for a few minutes. So here's here's the deal. I'm going to make a deal with you this morning. You stay awake and stay with me and there will be a prize. There will be a reward later on in the message. You won't miss it because, you know, now some people have that unique skill of being able to sleep right up until the crucial moment and wake up just in time. I lack that skill. You have it, but each promise in turn, because I want you are yea and unto the glorious promise first or Lord. Now you know, during all the years when Saul hunted for his life, never did David act peevishly or petulantly. He was tempted. He was sorely tempted to join the Philistines. But he did not behave himself like a spoiled young man. He didn't lash out at Saul. In fact, he showed, as I have said already, he showed incredible restraint in his dealings with Saul. When Saul died, David behaved very honorably. He honored Saul. He grieved. He mourned over Saul's death. (coughs) The Amalekite who claimed to have killed Saul. David not only did not reward him, didn't ignore him, but executed him, punished him for raising his hand against Saul. He dealt very hardly with him. He honored the men of Jabesh Gilead who risked their lives in order to spare Saul from any further disgrace. David didn't grasp for the throne of Israel after Saul was dead. He didn't say it's mine. He didn't do that. God said it was mine. God told me. He didn't do that. Not at all. He didn't wage war against Abner or against the northern ten tribes. When Joab viciously murdered Abner, David honored Abner and repudiated what Joab with them. Showed a pattern in his Coming, his he didn't resist Abner. Abner's the big righteous in all of the man of integrity, <clears throat> and even more so, David in his behavior and what he did showed us what it means to trust the Lord and wait patiently for Him. I'm repeating myself, but that's what I do. That's how I roll. I'm 52 years old, and can I, I'm not young. Man. I'm going to babble once in a while I'm here on the platform. Just <clears throat> it seems for today first. To be their king. We see that in verse number one. Ambassadors. The Bible doesn't call them that. Then all the tribes of. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David. Unto Hebron and spake saying. Behold we are thy bone and thy flesh. And so they make their appeal to David. They go to him first. And then I want you to notice. That in verse three. All the elders of Israel. Came to the king. So I read this to mean that there were some negotiations prior to the coronation. And in fact, um, that's what we see happening in verse number three. Uh, David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king. There was 
a process of neglect. know why David should be king. And, and sometimes we just think this is just a given. This is just obvious. Of course, David should be king. He was king for 40 years. The Bible says he was king. So, of course, we would want David to be king. I mean, why wouldn't you want David to be king, right? But still, there were these three appeals. First of all, they appealed to David that you are our own flesh and bone. Uh, bone in the Bible says it. For seven and a half. Um, <clears throat> and the northern ten tribes. That he, so they appeal of relate king, right? One of them. But they believed, and this is what we see over those seven and a half years. There's still, I think, that hope that one of the sons of Saul or someone related to Saul, that it would stay in the family. They, that's the way kings are supposed to work. And Israel wants that. They want it to function that way. And so they want Saul or someone in the house of Saul from the house of Saul. But it doesn't matter. They just recall David is their fellow countryman. Relationship on the basis, on the basis of leader. Uh, what really uh, replaced some of the most brilliant tacticians in the army of the Potomac um, some of the men there, Meade, McClellan, that were brilliant on Ulysses S. Grant, and he won. What we want. The women, that's been a long time now, and David has spent a lot of time running and hiding in the wilderness. So it might be forgotten that and Israel apparently for seven and a half years still was reluctant to crown him king. But ultimately, when it came down to it, they recognized his skill as a leader in battle. And so they asked him if he would be their king. Now, thirdly, and this is the most important right here. They appeal to David on the basis of God's promise to him. Now, for you and me. That's the one we think of just naturally. We automatically think that, of course, they would crown David king because God anointed him as king. And everyone knew that God had anointed him as king. Everyone knew that David was the next in line for the king. Saul himself knew it. It depressed Saul. It caused a lot of trouble in Israel because of it. Abner knew about it, right? Jonathan knew about it. Everyone knew that David was the promised king. So it seems like they saved their strongest argument for last, doesn't it? Right? Because him being their own flesh and blood, well, I mean, that would cover a lot of people, right? Him being a great leader in battle, well, you know, Joab was a great leader in battle as well, but they didn't ask him. Because God had promised that David was to be king. God's promise was most important. And the people certainly recognized that God had made this promise to David. And this wasn't a recent discovery, as I've already highlighted. They all knew about it. It was a well-known fact in Israel that David was to be the king. <clears throat> For seven and a half years, the northern ten tribes... Ignored, dismissed, disregarded the promise that God had made to David and did not embrace him as their king for seven and a half years. And now, finally, they're willing to say, David, you are our king. By the way, <clears throat> Isn't that the way it is for many who come to Jesus Christ, to faith in Jesus Christ? Huh? 
It isn't that they didn't know that Jesus was king and Lord and Savior. It isn't that they didn't know that. They knew it. They heard it. They ignored it, dismissed it, made excuses for it, for neglecting it. But then one day they came face to face. God brought them face to face with their need for it, with the absolute necessity that Jesus Christ become their king. And they surrendered and came to him and asked him to be their king. What a wonderful, glorious day. Uh, Is that not the case for many of us? In this room, did we not hear it? Did we not know it? Did we not resist it and come up with all kinds of reasons for not acting on it? But now we've come to Christ and he is our king. And things were and this is the amazing thing to me. Things were so good for Israel when they accepted David as their king. Finally, when they finally embraced him, when they finally petitioned him to become their king. That was a major turning point in the kingdom of Israel. Now that promise, God's promise to David, that's the clincher. Because finally, nearly a decade later, Israel came to David to make him their king. A decade after God made the promise. I think we would make a grave mistake to look past all the opposition to God's promise. Because it's easy for us to read these things in the Bible and think, well, God promised it, so of course he's going to do it. And not to, not to put a human face to it. There are many things that God has promised, and we are well aware of those promises. But there are many things that come in, enter in, that cause us to doubt or to wonder, right? This is, this is the way it is. This is our experience, our spiritual experience, our experience in life. <clears throat> How many times in the 10 years from David's anointing to David's reign, how many times did it seem impossible that God's promise would be fulfilled? How many times? Could we even count all the times? I don't think so. I think we could probably count all the times as we read 1 Samuel and early 2 Samuel. Probably we could count all the times where, yeah, that right there, that circumstance would make it seem impossible. And this event would make it feel impossible. If I were David right there and then, I would think, no way is this going to happen. It's too easy for us, I think, to read the story as if we already know the ending and to ignore all the trials and all the turmoil and all the threats that seem to make it impossible. How many times when David was fleeing for his life, do you think it went through his head, this will never happen? Israel's future king out here hiding under a rock. Israel's future king out here fleeing deeper into the wilderness. Israel's future king out here begging the navel for food, right? This has to be going through his head at various times. 
I say that just based on my own experience. Uh, the Bible doesn't say it, but I know myself. I would be thinking that. I would be thinking there's no way. This is impossible. That anointing, it must be. Was I having a dream? Did anyone witness that? Was there? I, I, it seems so long ago. Here. Remember the time when David was penned up against the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph and 200,000 soldiers of Saul were surrounding that mountain, mountain and pinning David and his 600 troops against that mountain. Do you remember that? And then suddenly a messenger came to Saul and told him that the Philistines had invaded and David at the last minute was spared by the Philistines. Do you remember that? Do you think when David was trapped up against that mountain that it didn't cross his mind that we're doomed? It's done. I don't know what that anointing thing was all about, but it's not doing me any good right now. What about those times when David flirted with joining the Philistines? Do you think later? I mean, David thought he said, I'm going to die. I might as well join the Philistines. Die fighting. In those times when David came very, very close to making it impossible for people to accept him as king. For example, if he had gone to war against Israel with the Philistines, as reluctant as the Israelites were to accept David as king, do you think that they would have jumped all over that if he joined forces with our sworn enemies? There are many times where David was a step away from ruining his reputation, from ruining his chances. David himself just about ruined it. If David had taken matters into his own hands, if he had raised his hand against God's anointed, if he had rewarded the brutality of Joab or the treachery of the sons of Ramon, if David grasped for the kingdom, it would have been so much more difficult for Israel to accept him as their king. And so what we see is throughout this process, God not only made a promise that he resolved to keep, but God also restrained David, preserved him, guided him, gave him wisdom and grace. And now God shows that the promise, the promise was never in any real danger of failing. Never really. Because God keeps his promises. He always does. Always does. Now this should delight us and encourage us because there are promises that Jesus made that he hasn't kept yet. But he will keep them. All Yahweh's promises are certain no matter how much resistance they may meet. God keeps his promise also, not only to David, but this is where I want you to be with me, all right? So, 
I warned you about falling asleep. And now here I am giving you the opportunity to catch up. All right. So here, here's, here's the Easter egg. I, I'm not supposed to point at an Easter egg, right? I point at it and say, there it is. But you know what an Easter egg is. Not, not like the painted eggs, but I mean, like it's, it's a treasure hidden in there. All right. So I'm, I'm just because I'm, I'm figuring that you need a little extra boost this morning. So I'm going to give it to you. Not only did God keep his promise to David, but God also, and we see this beginning in verse six, God kept his promise to Abraham as well. And I want to show you this. But before I explain that, I need to point out the storyteller's method in this chapter. We, in, in going through First and Second Samuel, I've taken some time to point out the method that's used in telling the stories. And we learn in First Samuel that sometimes the narrator reverses or switches around the order and tells the story out of order a little bit in order to make a point. Maybe you'll remember at the end of 1 Samuel, on the night before he died, Saul went to the witch of Endor. You remember that? And Samuel told Saul that tomorrow you will die. We don't get to that part of the story for another few chapters. Because the story switches, the scene switches, and we go to David applying, attempting to join up with the Philistines. And then David <clears throat> coming back to Ziklag to discover that Ziklag has been looted and his wives and children, the wives and children have been carried away into captivity and David rescuing them. And then we come back to the death of Saul. So it isn't unusual for the writer of these stories to move away from the chronological order. But our text is unusual in that 2 Samuel 5 gives us a rundown of the highlights of the reign of King David, and there is no rhyme or reason at all to the order of these different things in the story. Let me just real quick point out a couple things. Verses 11 and 12 describe what took place at the end of David's reign, reign, because we know that Hiram did not come on the throne until the last 10 years, the last decade of David's reign. So that took place 30 years after David became king. Verses, 11, uh, verses 13 through 16 name all the sons born to David while he reigned in Jerusalem. So this is expanding his entire reign. Verse 17, and after that, Describe the Philistines' reaction when they heard that David was king. Most likely, right immediately after he, was, he became Israel's king. Now when the writer does this, usually it's because he has something he wants to emphasize. And in this case, he first highlights David's capture of Jerusalem. Now hang with me here while I take you through this. Now, I'm going to back up and talk about why you sent me to Israel, because the reason you sent me to Israel was so that I could tell you things like this. And when I was in Israel, I was shocked at how steep and rugged and how high the mountains were, how mountainous 
It is, especially Bethlehem. Bethlehem just shocked me because I've always pictured Bethlehem as this flat meadow with a little gentle hill off in the distance. And when I got there, I saw that Bethlehem sits on top of cliffs, almost sheer cliffs. I mean, steep, steep, rugged heights. And you are sitting up high and you can see across the valley, you can see Jerusalem. And Jerusalem also is sitting on a mountain. And when I got to Jerusalem, and it really wasn't until I was in Jerusalem itself, because the first night we got there and he t- our guide took us to an overlook and we looked over Israel and we saw really the famous scene, the famous layout of the city with the Dome of the Rock at the center and all of that. And it's really neat and fascinating. But then when I was in Jerusalem, in the city of David, the part of Jerusalem that's called the city of David, where most likely his palace was, where ex- archaeologists think they've discovered parts of his, um, his uh, palace there. <clears throat> and we were standing there, and our guide pointed out all the mountains that were around us. And in fact, Jerusalem is itself a mountain. And there are a number of mountains surrounding Jerusalem as well, and in between all of those mountains are valleys, and between Jerusalem and all those mountains, there's a valley also that runs all the way around it. And when I was standing there, I said, That's what would make Jerusalem such a coveted place because it is so defensible, especially in the day, days before missiles, or bef- at least before you had, you know, javelins you could throw. You had those, but I mean, before, you know, rocket-propelled missiles and so on, you could defend it. The only way for an invading army to get to Jerusalem is either to go over one of the mountains or go around one of the mountains, but either way, they are vulnerable, they are exposed when they get there. And then Jerusalem itself is such a stronghold, it's built on such steep terrain, rugged terrain, that for armies to get there would require some serious planning and some serious power. And there were many, many times when foreign troops attempted to overthrow Jerusalem. Because no wonder then, Jerusalem decides they except thou take away the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in. <clears throat> I'll tell you, there's a second debate about the exact meaning of seven and eight. And when you look at them, when you read them, surely when I read them before, you were looking at that and saying, boy, that's difficult. What does that mean? Especially the part about David saying to kill the blind and the lame who my soul hateth. What is that talking about here? Now, I'll tell you that the Hebrew of these books of Samuel is some of the most difficult Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so it can be difficult to explain it to you in a, or even to identify exactly what the Hebrew is saying right there. I'm not going to try to break down all the various options that have been proposed by different theologians. The way the King James says it, 
Makes you wonder if the Jebusites weren't telling David that he has to deal with the blind and the lame if he wants to take their city. Like, um, you know, you're going to have to deal with them first before you can be uh, rule over this city. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all. The end of the verse explains that the Jebusites didn't think David could take the city at all. And that's key to understanding what they said here. Because the Jebusites were taunting David with the blind and the lame. This is what they're saying. Jerusalem is so strong and so easy to defend that we can have the blind and the lame defend our city and you won't be able to conquer it. That's what they're saying to David. It's kind of like, you know, when I was in high school and somebody would mess with me and I would say, being the cocky teenager that I was, I'll get my little sister to do my light work. That's a taunt. And that's what the Jebusites were doing to David. They were taunting him. We won't even bring out our army. We'll just get the blind and the lame to defend the city walls and you won't be able to get past them. But notice the next verse. You have to love this. This is what I love about the Bible. In the next verse, the Bible says, verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. So they said, David, our position in this city is so strong, and our defenses are so overwhelmingly mighty that the, we can get the, blame, the blind, the blame, and the lime. We can get the lot, the lame and the blind to defend it, and you won't be able to. And then the Bible just says, doesn't even tell you how. Nevertheless, David conquered the city. That's what the Bible says. The confusion comes for us in the next verse, verse number eight. And David said on that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. What is the gutter? And why does David say that the lame and the blind are hated of his soul? That doesn't seem very compassionate now, does it? And why did he issue a decree that the blind and the lame shall not come into the house? And for that matter, what is the house? These are not easy questions to answer. A couple of the commentaries I read just basically threw up their hands and said, I, I'm not sure what this is saying exactly. They said, for sure the gutter isn't what we think of as a gutter. All right, not running along the street like that. It most likely refers to a water shaft. And in Jerusalem, there's a famous water shaft. It's today called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Um, Hezekiah improved it dramatically. But there was long before David conquered Jerusalem, there was a water shaft from within the city that you could 
climb down, you'd walk down steps, and then you'd walk through this tunnel, and then you'd walk down more steps, and it would give you protected access to this Gihon Spring, which was the main water source for Jerusalem. And so you could access it and be protected. And they had the, the spring itself concealed from people. Now, Hezekiah improved it even more so that the water was coming in to the city and you didn't have to expose yourself to danger whatsoever. And so the theory is that David and his men somehow... Um, accessed Jerusalem, stopped up the spring and went through that water shaft and entered into the city of Jerusalem and conquered the city. That's the theory. Now just say this, the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell us how David conquered Jerusalem. Doesn't explain it to us. It's interesting to me because so many times God gives us these kinds of details, but on this one, that's not the point. The point is not that they conquered Jerusalem. They did conquer it. Absolutely. <clears throat> the Jebusites said that they would put the lame and the blind on the wall to defend it. And David tagged the entire Jebusite army as the hateth. Or David referred to the Jebusites as the lame and the blind whom my soul hateth. So... That's my explanation. It's not a deeply theological and it's not carefully made. I read a lot and it makes sense to me that that would be the case in this particular part of the story here. So I, I just want you to understand, at least be able to decipher some of what is said here in the Bible uh, in the description of David conquering Jerusalem. That seems like to me the best explanation for the exchange between David and the Jebusites. They taunted David. David made them eat their words. And in this victory, David secured Jerusalem as his capital. He built up its defenses and he went on and grew great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So there I've explained it. But what does that have to do with Abraham. You wonder, don't you? If you're with me, you're wondering. If I tell you that I needed help to find this, please don't hold it against me. I needed help to find this. I don't want to take credit for it. But this is actually, David conquering Jerusalem here is actually the third time that Israel went up against Jerusalem and the Jebusites. Judah defeated the Jebusites in Jerusalem, but they could not drive them out of the city or capture the city. In Judges chapter 8 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. But in Joshua 15 and verse 63, the Bible says, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Do you remember when David killed Goliath? Do you remember what he did with Goliath's head? The Bible tells us that he hung it in Jerusalem. 
I believe that he was sending his calling card to the Jebusites to say, you're next. You're on my list. I haven't forgotten you. Not only did Judah defeat the Jebusites, but failed to drive them out of Jerusalem, but also the tribe of Benjamin, according to Judges chapter 1 and verse 21, and the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. So the Jebusites had history behind their taunt. They've been up against Israel before. Let us get our lame. Let us get our blind. They'll defend us against you. And yet, God had made a promise. He made that promise to Abraham 800 years before David conquered Jerusalem. God set up this promise and set this particular promise apart in a very special way. It's unique. So I want you to follow with me. In Genesis chapter 15, you can look there if you want to. In Genesis chapter 15, God required Abram to divide in half a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old she-goat and a three-year-old ram, and to take a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He did not divide the birds in half, but the other animals, all three years of age, he divided in half, and he laid those birds out on the ground, and he divided the halves of those animals on the ground, one on one side, one on the other, a path in the middle, And all day long, Abraham drove off the vultures and the wild beasts that came to devour those carcasses. And that night, Genesis 15 and verse 12, that night, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And the Bible says, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And God there made a covenant with Abram. This covenant was more than just words. This covenant was sealed with a very special act that God did there with those divided halves of animals and birds. The Bible tells us <clears throat> that God, in the form of a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, passed between those pieces and he made an oath with Abram. Now this was a special symbolic kind of oath. There's a technical term for it. It's called a maledictory oath. That oath and and the, the, the idea of it was that as God passed through the middle of those split animals, obviously dead. God was telling Abram that if I don't keep my promise to you, I myself will be split down the middle. How serious. Through those divided animals, sealing the covenant that he made with Abram, 
Then, when the Lord had sworn to forfeit his own life, if he did not keep his promise to Abram, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and notice the Jebusites. The Jebusites. Now this promise, this same promise was repeated at least nine more times between Abraham and David. How many years were between Abraham and David? Maybe 800, something like that. And yet, God promised and God kept the promise. On the day when David found himself trapped up against that mountain in the wilderness of Ziph, it was a certain that Israel would conquer Jerusalem as it was the day after David and his troops led by Joab invaded Jerusalem and conquered the lame and the blind whom David's soul hated. 800 years is not too long for God to keep his promises. His promises don't have an expiration date. They don't run out. They don't spoil. They don't go bad. They cannot be destroyed. That's the message in this passage. God's promise is sure. When Solomon dedicated the temple, after so many years of waiting, he blessed the people and he reminded them, there hath not failed One word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. And that blessing is as true to us today as it was in the day when David conquered Jerusalem. God does not let his words fall to the ground. His promises are certain despite opposition to them. Despite the passing of time, his promises remain. They stand. His promises are certain. We might forget what God has promised, but I assure you that he has not. The greatest display of the omnipotence of God is in the fact that he makes promises that only he can keep, and he keeps all the promises that he has made. He keeps his promises. None of God's words fall to the ground. It took 10 years, but finally David is crowned king. Immediately, God highlights an 800-year-old promise that he made to Abraham and kept through King David. Because what he has promised, he is able to perform. His promises never expire. They are never overturned. They are never blocked. You can, you can, you can't stop him, right? You can't stop him. You can't contain him. He is overwhelming. We have a sure word of God. It falls to us then to be fully persuaded that what he has promised 
he is able to perform. And I could end the message right there, and I would like to end the message right there, and some of you might like me to end the message right there, but you would miss out on one more amazing truth. In his Galilean ministry, Jesus regularly healed multitudes. But a curious thing happened when Jesus visited Jerusalem. According to John's gospel, on his visits to Jerusalem, Jesus did not heal multitudes. He healed individuals. Two of them, in fact, to be exact. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed by the pool of Bethesda a lame man. And in John chapter 9, Jesus healed along the road to Jericho a man who was born blind. Isn't that something? Doesn't that make you wonder if maybe David's royal son had some unfinished business with the Jebusites? Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. First Chronicles tells us that Joab led the victory at Jerusalem, but Jesus caused the lame man to take up his bed and walk. Who had the greater victory? Jesus caused a blind man to see. Tell me which is better. Were these hated of David's soul? Did he loathe those arrogant Jebusites and their taunts? Jesus dealt better with the lame and with the blind. He healed them so they weren't lame or blind anymore. Was Jesus symbolically claiming Jerusalem once again for his own kingdom? I have no idea, honestly, if Jesus meant anything symbolically by this. The Bible doesn't say that at all. I do know for sure that this is very typical of the way Jesus deals with his enemies. Because when Jesus deals with his enemies, what he does not do is kill them and destroy them. He converts them and makes his enemies his friends, not just his friends, but his sons and daughters. Repent, see all the intrigue and all this, the gospel, which is the 800 years that if we'll believe, bring you into heaven. A God who is able to promise a particular land inhabited by a particular people to Abraham in advance and later is able to preserve you alive in heaven for all eternity. And so the call to believe the gospel is a call to believe the promise. And you must follow the way of the blind and lame and pagan defenders of Jerusalem. Throw down your arms. Bow down before him. 
For he is your Lord and your God. Otherwise, you will face certain and eternal consequences, condemnation, destruction for eternity. For God's promises for evil are as certain as his promises for good. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn.